Downtown Productions in cooperation with Zone Radio presents Downtown, the podcast. From the historic Zone Radio studios, here's your host, Rich Kimball. Welcome in. It is indeed Downtown, the podcast, episode number 166. Rich Kimball here along with Carrie Haskell, brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Oh, we have got a fun one coming up for you this week on the podcast. One subject, two guests all together uh, talking about one of the best TV series, one of the most unique and influential shows in television history, but one that you don't hear a lot about anymore. And we're talking about Moonlighting that burst on the scene on ABC back in the late winter, early spring of 1985 went on to become a mammoth hit, and then in just a few years' time was gone. What are the reasons behind that? Well, people have talked through the years about the moonlighting curse, that maybe the lead characters of David Addison, Matty Hayes, got together too soon. Well, Scott Ryan was a big fan of the show, remains a big fan to this day, and he has written a book examining that question and more. It's called moonlighting and oral history and well among other things scott concludes that 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 really wasn't the reason for it that the show continued to have some great and memorable episodes after that but it was a lot of people going in different directions in their career bruce willis fairly early on in the run did die hard and became a big time movie star and he was he was much more interested in that uh, glenn gordon karen the creator and writer of the show had been let go and gone on to do other things. And, and so it was a confluence of factors. One of the things I really like about Scott's book is that it's not about pointing fingers of blame. It's about celebrating this incredibly memorable show. And we had a chance to talk about the book and the show with Scott Ryan and one of the cast members, our friend Curtis Armstrong, talk a little moonlighting. Is it safe to say, Scott, the book was written, first of all, out of love, but also out of curiosity about how this this wonderful show went from being at the very top to off the air in such a, a short time. I, I also love the fact that this book is a celebration. You're not looking to blame anybody. Uh, no, I mean, I watched Moonlighting when it originally aired. I was 15, and it blew me away. And it really made me want to become a writer. And I said in all the early things I wrote, I was stealing from Glenn Gordon Karen. I, I, I told him very honestly, I love anything that starts out going this way and then whaps you upside the head immediately, which is really what Moonlighting was all about, is making you look this way so they could get you that way. <laughs> and that, I, I just wanted to find out how he did it and why no show was ever able to do it again. Now, Curtis, this uh, show that brought so much joy to so many people obviously was a challenge at times to make. Despite that challenge, was there enjoyment in the work? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it was the greatest, you know, job. I, I would say it was definitely in the top five jobs of my life. It was way up there. I mean, they did so much with Viola over time. And the, the, the episodes were so imaginative and so creative. Um, I just never knew 
what was happening. Uh, when I first, not when I first did it, but shortly thereafter, when I realized I was going to be a regular, um, uh, I had been offered to go back to do a summer of Shakespeare back east. I think it was at the New Jersey Shakespeare Festival, which I had to cancel because I was now doing a show that ran, that the work schedule was indefinite. And uh, so I had to pass on that. And uh, I remember telling Jay Daniel that on the set and he said, well, funny thing. <laughs> and then he said, you may wind up doing your Shakespeare after all. And sure enough, um, th those kinds of things were happening all the time, you know, uh, rumors coming down of what they had planned for the next episode and all of that. So it was tremendously exciting. The character was great. The dialogue was wonderful. And I really, you know, for the most part, you know, despite all of the conflict and everything, I mean, it was, I was usually not involved in that, um, except sort of on the side. Um, it, it was, uh, it, I generally got along well with everybody. So that part of it wasn't a problem for me. Scott, let's go back to the beginning. And, and you point out in the book that TV in 1985 was, was pretty serious. There wasn't, uh, there wasn't a lot that was light that even sitcoms were, were going into darker areas, but Glenn Gordon Karen wanted no part of that. Yeah, I mean, to me, that is what made me come alive as a teenager. Uh, every time David Addison would look in the camera and talk to the audience, my dad would go, now, why did, why did they do that? <laughs> And he hated it. He hated all of the things. And I would light up. He just, why can't they just have a nice mystery and solve it at the end and go on? And especially the boxing episode, um, my dad got up and left the room because it does get extremely three stooges at the end when, you know, David's bouncing back and forth. And I was howling, you know, it just spoke to me. And it's what TV needed. And I think it allowed other writers to break out outside of that box. I love the story that uh, Glenn Gordon Karen was writing this with Sybil Shepherd in mind, but she had already been famous for, what, 15 years or so by then and didn't think there was a chance, but her agent gave it to her. And I, the great story of the meeting with, with Glenn and, and Jay Daniel, when she looked at it and said, oh, it's Hoxian, and they had no idea what she meant. Yeah, and, and Glenn uh, says he, he had never, he had no idea that's what he was writing. To him, he just wanted it to be fast paced. But Sybil, because she had a relationship with Peter Bogdanovich, knew every old film that there was. I mean, she told me many times she went to the school of Bogdanovich, and that was her film school. So she had a knowledge that Glenn didn't have. I think Jay did have a, a little bit of that. I think he certainly, at least he knew who Howard Hawks was. <laughs> Curtis, from, from an acting standpoint, uh, was it fun, challenging, uh, at times difficult to do that rapid fire, often overlapping dialogue? Oh yeah, it was, I mean, I hadn't had that much experience in film. I'd done five movies maybe at that point. Um, so, uh, for me, having come from theater and then into feature films, this was my first television. So I didn't know, I just assumed it was like movies. And it sort of was, 
uh, from the standpoint of it being a movie every week. Um, but uh, learning the uh, the dialogue was a serious challenge because it was happening so fast and you had so little rehearsal time. Um, you really had to just hit the ground running. And uh, it was, it was, if it hadn't been happening so fast, it would have scared me to death, <laughs> but I didn't really had have time to think about it. So I just did it. I'm not well, sure I, I could now, <laughs> to be I honest have to with say, you. Um, Curtis has a monologue and here's living with you kid that it opens the episode. It's not the part of the episode that anyone would remember because it's the it's in color. And he's watching an orange plant, if that <laughs> makes sense to anyone. But he talks. I think I clocked it. It's like seven minutes of yeah. him just talking into a tape recorder. And, I mean, how did you – you probably got that script. That was know, easy. 15 minutes. That was yeah. easy? Oh, I mean, that was crazy. easy. That was like – that was a monologue. Learning monologues is easy. It's when you're, you know, overlapping and and speed talking through scenes with two or three other people. That's where it gets tricky. And but but when you're just, I mean, I that was not hard. Yeah. It was great. I mean, I was I was caught. I was aware of the fact that I was being given a scene, a, a, an episode. Basically, it's the only one that you could really call a Viola episode. Here's living with you, kid, and. Um, and I knew that that was a huge gift. Um, but also the writing was so good. One thing a lot of actors know, when the writing is good, it's easy to memorize. When the writing is not good, it can be killer. And with Moonlighting, it was always easy to memorize. We're talking with Curtis Armstrong, Scott Ryan, looking back at Moonlighting here on Downtown. Uh, the search for David Addison uh, was one of the most exhaustive casting searches at that time in the history of television. I was surprised to learn people like Rick Dees were considered. Uh, the oh. template, though, was uh, was Bill Murray in Ghostbusters and, as you wrote, Scott, David Letterman's morning show and that sensibility. Yeah, Glenn told me that he just felt that men on television were not representing the men that he had seen in New Jersey and New York. And he said the only sensibility at all that he had seen of what he was looking for was on Letterman's morning show, you know, and, and Dave's sarcasm. And they wanted Bill Murray for the lead and Jessica Lange for the female lead. Those were sort of the, that, that's what um, Glenn sort of hung his hat on. And what I love is the casting director, Ruben Cannon. I always want to say Ruben Carter every time because I'm a big Bob Dylan fan and I have to really slow down and say Cannon. Um, he was actually fired as the casting director for, <laughs> from ABC because they said, if you think Bruce Willis could stand next to Sybil Shepherd. you don't know how to do your job, you're fired. He said it's the only time in his career he was fired, which is ridiculous now. Yeah. Uh, the third member of that original cast that we have to talk about and, and wish a happy belated birthday. Uh, at least Beasley celebrated a birthday yesterday. Uh, Curtis, you two worked together so well, and, and she created a character at the time that was, it was unlike anybody on television, and then immediately we began to see knockoffs of that performance and still do i mean that was that the character of uh ms de pesto it really belongs back in that whole realm 
uh, that you were talking about of screwball comedy uh, of you know the 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 funny quirky sidekick um, that they had back in in those days, and she was just so visible and the and the fact that she would answer the phone the phone with a rhyme was just out there and it's one of the things that drew people i think to the show you know she was one of those people who when the leads are sort of inaccessible you can at least relate to you know the the uh the sidekick um and that's what she that's what she brought to it, you know, with great charm and great elan, and she was able to do all of that stuff. Um, it was uh, a wonderful character and performance, and I love her. People forget that uh, when the show went on the air, it was a mid-season replacement, so there were only five episodes in that initial season, and, and it, it took a while uh, for everybody to sort of find their footing, but uh, Scott, that season one finale really set the tone for what was to come yeah it ends with a rhyme speaking of mr pesto rhymes uh with a agent between bruce willis and a guy at the door where he says i'm looking for a man with a mole on his nose a mole on his nose what kind of clothes what kind of clothes do i suppose would be man with a mole with a mole on his nose who knows um and you know, again, that's one of those moments where my dad hit the lazy boy chair and I lit up. You know, it was, you just don't have that. I mean, can you imagine if that happened in Breaking Bad? Someone just started rhyming out of nowhere. You know, just television is, is again, so serious. I would yeah. love to see a show come in and just honestly crack it all open again. My parents hated it too. And, uh, and it was my first TV series. So I thought it was a pretty big deal. And uh, I, it got to the point where I had to call them the day before it aired and let them know whether I had enough to do in it for them to sit through Bruce Willis and Sybil Shepard. So. <laughs> well, and one of the writers, Chick Igley, said uh, his dad was the same thing because he had worked on St. Elsewhere before. And he said, you left that show for <laughs> moonlighting? You know, he was just horrified by it. So there was a generational thing that I don't think lasts now. Now it's just a classic. But that's one of those things that if you came from that era, you really know how much it rocked the comfort zone of what television was doing back then. Well, yeah. whether, whether it was breaking the fourth wall or, or rhymes, uh, it was already pretty edgy and, and extremely unique. And then what just 10 episodes in uh, really began to break the mold with the black and white episode of the dream sequence always rings twice. And if that wasn't awesome enough, then bringing in Orson Welles to introduce it. Yeah. Yeah, and that was something that everyone that I interviewed, I would cue, you know, cue up the Orson and they all remembered it so vividly. It mattered to everyone that Orson Welles came out and would do that opening. And then of course he had he was gone in a week. Right. And what I find again just so almost humbling about television there was no promo for it 
ABC was not saying the last scene with Orson Welles ever, nine o'clock. You well, they didn't see know it. about it. I mean, that was, <laughs> chances are, I, I, you know, they, they had gotten to the point, you know, into that second and third season where ABC was just hoping the show would show up. And, uh, you know, so they, it, it, I think it was a difference also in the, between now and then was the idea that, that uh, you had to clear things with the network and it wasn't just script stuff. And there was a lot of that on Moonlighting where the, the network would, would raise hell about something, some double entendre or something that they did <laughs> and, um, and have to change it. But, but um, I think even something like that, bringing in, <laughs> bringing in Orson Welles or doing these things would just be brilliant. And it almost became easier for them to do be, once they got really behind schedule and the deeper in trouble they were with the network, the more chance they had of getting stuff past them. Now, season- I, I, I'm going oh, I'm to, go I want to take over a little bit here, Rich, because oh, I'm curious from Curtis's perspective, uh, what did you learn in the book? Cause you were there. Was there oh, anything you learned that you were like, stuff. I did not know this. Yeah. There were a lot of stuff because there was so much that I missed going into it. You know, I came into it. People had been telling me that I needed to see it. I had never seen it. And then I auditioned for it. And suddenly I'm, you know, on a desk with Ms. DePesto. And I'm, <laughs> it was all of the lead up for that. The only things that I was aware of were things that I found out later on, like from Sybil, because of the of the Peter Bogdanovich connection, we used to go sometimes to Sybil's house for dinner, and Peter was always there. And I got a sense of that Peter Bogdanovich University thing from dinners at Sybil's house, because Bogdanovich would be there and he'd be talking about you know everything. And I loved old movies; that was my thing as well. Uh, and so uh, it would always be fun to be to be in uh, just not even contributing because you couldn't contribute. You just <laughs> were taking it in. Um, so all of that stuff. And, you know, the, the, the thing about it is I know that there's one thing that you said in your book, and I forgot what it is now, but there's one thing in your book which says it makes my book um, – uh, what was it? What did you yeah. say? Well, well, it's my book or, or did I got something wrong. I, well, you, you weren't wrong. So in your book, you say, and it's early on, you say no one has ever done a history of moonlighting oh, because right. it was so contentious. Yeah. And I actually read your book while I was doing my book. And I thought, well, that's not intimidating at all. <laughs> you know, here well, I am trying to prove you wrong. I mean, there was actually a, oh, yeah, no, because it was so contentious right. at the time. See, right. Chick Egley, I was doing theater back east. I got a call from Chick Egley long after the show. And he said, uh, there's a person writing a book about moonlighting, and she wants to interview as many people. Would you be interested? And I said, yes, I would be happy to talk to her because he was making that effort. So um, never heard another word about it. That was the end of it. And I think one of the problems that had come up, which you were able to get around, which is kind of a miracle, is that the bad feelings and, and everything that came out of that um, took a long time to dissipate. And so 
it was very difficult to get a an overall sense of the show anytime before you started doing it. So I, I don't mind being proved wrong in that case. But it, and I think there actually was a book. Wasn't there some like potboiler book uh, about moonlighting? And I'm sorry, I don't remember the author's name. I think there was something, yeah, but it was, wasn't an was, in-depth. Yeah, it wasn't, it was like an outside thing and it was while the show was really hot. It, was like still, it came out yeah. in 86. It was something like, yeah. yeah. So it's not a history was, of the show. Right. Uh, and I, it, it was interesting for me because when I would call people and, you know, you get there, I got to Curtis through because I, I Ron and Jeff liked me. They understood what I was right. doing. So they would, they went to Elise and Curtis for me and I didn't have to pry anything out of anyone. I feel like everyone had been waiting to talk. They were ready. It, you know, now it's the time. Feeling. Yeah. I mean, I yeah, feel now like time, the time had passed. Yeah, and I think people were were are more relaxed about it, and they can look back on it with um, more sweetness than bitterness. Because uh, I mean, I don't know how Bruce feels about it. Um, I don't even really know how Sybil feels about it. But um, you know, we're able to at least, I think, for the writers, most of them, you know, they can look back on this with some at least appreciation that was a huge thing to be involved in, if not real affection. Curtis, I was uh, rereading your book, and uh, I, I want to ask you about when you went in for your reading with Glenn Gordon Karen, and, and you described it as you walked into the room as looking like The Last Supper. Yeah, yeah, they were looking like The Last Supper, not me, but yeah, they were uh, all lined up at a table. And uh, I didn't know who any of them were. So I just, you know, I had read, I think I had read once with Karen Weiss and then uh, who was the casting uh, director on it. And then, um, and then I was called back to read for Glenn and the rest of them. And that's all I remember, <laughs> except the other, the other thing that I remember was I went through this scene with her, with, with Karen. And then um Glenn looked down one way and then down the other and every <laughs> these other people are lined up there and he's sort of raising his eyebrows and they're all going and he says you got it you got the part and I just it was like getting slapped I could no actor gets that you do not get offered the, the role in the room and he said the thing is um, Karen could you take Curtis into uh, your office because there were still people to read and they couldn't send them home. And that had never happened to me in my life. And it was one of the most exciting, I mean, dazzling, you know, I, I, it was like being now, mind you, it was just for one episode at that point, but still, right. It was pretty exciting. We're talking moonlighting with author Scott Ryan and actor Curtis Armstrong on downtown, the podcast. A quick word from our friends at Cross Insurance. We're back with more moonlighting 
right after this. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Let's listen to a little bit of Al Jarreau. with Scott Ryan, author of Moonlighting and Oral History, and Herbert Viola himself, actor Curtis Armstrong. You touched on Atomic Shakespeare, which for my money is one of the great television episodes yeah. in history, and I re-watched it to, uh, to get ready for this. And, well, man, Curtis, you just, you just kicked butt in that. I mean, you were classically trained, but you were, let's put it this way, after reading your book again, too, Michael J. Pollard could not have done that. Only Why, Curtis thank Armstrong you. could. <laughs> thank, that's, that's awfully nice. Um, um, Michael J. Pollard can do anything. So, uh, no, the, um, I think what happened was it was, I was the only person of the past um, who had actually done Shakespeare. So that gave me a bit of a leg up. And then well, we, we so talk funny. I have to say he is so funny in the good loving scene. It, like just oh. the look <laughs> on your face while you're doing your little yeah. thing. It's just it's the gusto of Viola that puts him in the legends of comedy. He's like he's only 100 really percent enthusiastic yeah. all the time, <laughs> whether, whether he, he uh, should be or not. Uh, yeah, he's always that. And we talked about a little bit about Here's Living With You, Kid, which which was just brilliant. And I was surprised in reading the book that uh, it, it was not one of the higher rated shows. The feedback wasn't That's great. I love it mildly. <laughs> but I love that episode. Now, I, I'm older than you, Scott, but uh, watching that as a viewer at the time, I, I don't want to say I've grown tired of Sybil and Bruce, but... But I love Ms. DePesto and Herbert Viola. I wanted to see more of them. And for me, that episode was a dream come true. Well, yeah, but the, the problem is all of the DePesto episodes, they had a they had a, 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 a standard setup where it would begin like a normal show and then with Bruce and Sybil. And then Bruce and Sybil would disappear and it would suddenly, you know, into the second commercial break, you'd go, hey. <laughs> and then it was suddenly they realized it was it was a DePesto episode. The reason that Here's Living With You Kid is the lowest rated ever, uh, to my knowledge, is because it starts with that scene you're talking about, a seven-minute monologue <laughs> from the fourth character, not even DePesto. And it becomes clear fairly quickly that they're not going to come. So uh, people, you know, abandon it. 
Well, the thing about Here's Living With You, Kid, is it's written by Jeff and Ron. It's their last episode. They wrote the Shakespeare episode. They also wrote this episode. And for my money, it's as funny. It's just people didn't give it a chance. Mm -hmm. I think what he's saying is true. They were like, ah, we're not going to find out if if Dave and Maddie are getting back together. So they were missing out. I cannot watch Casablanca without immediately watching the last 20 minutes of Here's the Living. I watch them back to back now. They are the same. They're one movie to me. And well, Bogart so was my perfect. hero. This is the other thing, is growing up, the movies of the 20s, the 30s, the 40s, that was what I grew up on. I didn't grow up on TV. I didn't go to see that much of what was coming out in the 60s and 70s. I was in that. And Bogart was my hero of all of them. And I did imitations of him in school because I thought it was, I had a trench coat. I had a fedora. I was the biggest nerd, serious nerd. And Bogart was my big hero in movies. So when I realized I was being asked to do Bogart for the better part of an entire episode, uh, it was, I mean, how can he beat that? It's, it's brilliant. I loved also reading in the book about not just Curtis Armstrong Day, but Curtis Armstrong Week. Oh, Curtis Armstrong Week. Yeah. <laughs> uh, never never figured out exactly who was responsible for that. But somebody came up with the idea on a Friday of having a celebration for Curtis Armstrong Week. It was after Glenn had left because that morning I was on the stage and he called the stage phone. He was at Warner Brothers then doing Clean and Sober, I think. And he called the the stage phone. And I said, hello? I mean, Glenn wants to talk to me on the phone? (laughs) And I said, hello? Curtis, it's Glenn. Uh, I heard it was Curtis Armstrong uh, week. I wanted to give you a call, wish you good luck today, because no one would tell me what it was. It started with Bruce in the morning on Monday coming in and saying, ladies and gentlemen, it's Curtis Armstrong week. And what did that mean? I didn't know. (laughs) Nothing happened for a week. And then suddenly there's a parade around the Fox lot and, and Bruce and Sybil are in, in cars. And And Savage Steve Holland showed up. Savage showed up. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, 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 All sorts of people were there and applauding. And it was, we had a, a, a one-man band and a Bun DMC tribute band, and I mean, it was just ridiculous. And but it, what was great about it was everybody went home when it was done because it took so long. They figured, oh well, that's the end of today's work, and I think that was the idea all along. <laughs> We're talking with Scott Ryan, Curtis Armstrong about the moonlighting. Scott's book is Moonlighting. And oral history. And Scott, one of the themes of the book is that uh, because of the way it was being written, they were never able to get out the requisite number of episodes per season. Uh, actors, uh, directors, people were getting scripts, uh, sometimes even handed to them in longhand after being dictated over the telephone. Was that a product of, uh, I guess you could look on one hand and say, well, people didn't know what they're doing. On the other hand, people didn't know what they were doing, and so that freed them to break some of the rules that had existed before this in television. Well, I think in a lot of ways, that was the answer to my question that I really wondered, why has there never been another show like Moonlighting? And it's because in this day and age, they would not 
ever let a producer not have scripts ready. And Glenn said he couldn't write it unless he felt it and he thought it was true. And so he said he never minded sitting in his office thinking while everyone is out on the set waiting for him. There'd be crews of people. Alan Arkish, who directed the most episodes of Moonlighting, told the story of how when he came for his interview, he said he had worked a full day at either St. Elsewhere or Fame, came over, and it was like 7.30 or something. And he's like, Jay and Glenn are sitting in the office kicking back, and someone comes in, and they're like, oh, we got a couple more hours. And he was like, what? And he was like, nobody was nervous. And they just rolled with it. Yeah, and it was also, Glenn was also rewriting other scripts. So it wasn't just the ones that got his name on it. Pretty much everybody who wrote a script, it had to go through Glenn's computer. Well, not his computer, his typewriter, whatever it was at the time. And so that was another part of of this was that I, I think no, which is common in television now especially, but in those days... You, you, you didn't get a script out without him doing the pass out. Scott, one of the other questions that you wanted to answer with the book is this notion of the moonlighting curse, whether getting David and Maddie together as early in the series as they did is, is what ultimately spelled its doom. But I, you do a great job of pointing out that there, there were some wonderful, wonderful episodes in the seasons to follow. So, so what did cause the demise of, of moonlighting? I'd like to get both your thoughts on that. I mean, it, it, it was everything. And I know that's like the worst answer, but I feel like that is, is what I was hoping the book would show, was that it wasn't that Dave and Maddie did it in episode, whatever it was, 36 or something. Sybil got pregnant. Elise was pregnant. Bruce broke his collie, collar bone. He did die hard. Glenn went off and made a movie. I mean, you can't have a TV series and have all of that happen. It all happened when the episode aired of Dave and Maddie having sex. So the simple solution is they had sex. The show is no good anymore. And I just, <laughs> I think if anything, the book should at least present another side that, that that's not exactly what happened. Yeah, I I mean I see it a little bit differently because I think that it it makes it feel I mean you're right but it also makes it feel a little bit like all of these sort of these things happened separately and under just a uh, 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 just coincidentally um, you know Bruce didn't just want to make Die Hard he wanted to make movies. The first day I met Bruce, when I was on the set of, of the first day, and I was introduced to Bruce Willis, and he said to me, first words out of his mouth were, you make movies. What are you doing here? <laughs> it was like I was slumming. And I said, well, I don't know, it seems like a good show. But to him, he said, if I could make movies, I'd be out of here in a flash. Mm -hmm. And that's what wound up happening. And there were the conflicts between the two of them, which made it difficult. It was, as you point out in the book, it's hard for them to write scenes when they're not talking. So that was another element of it. And, you know, they, you know, they had to go into these deep 
uh, uh, script stories, uh, plot stories to keep them apart, essentially. And sometimes that works great. You know, it worked really well on X-Files is a good example of when you, when you can do that over many seasons. It wasn't as successful in this case, I don't think. And um, so there were, I think there were numbers of reasons for it, but Glenn was gone. And not to say that that uh, that uh, the people, Chick and uh, Roger and, and the rest of them weren't more than capable. Um, but as you point out, Glenn had sort of clamped down on everything he was calling the shots. My view, you know, and, and this is, of course, a memory from many years ago now, but that would be my take on it, was that although you're right about all of those things, it was a little more complicated than just they all happened to happen at the same time as that episode. People were disappointed when they got together because they're always disappointed when they got together. <laughs> I mean, that's the way it is. You don't want to do that. And, uh, you know, it just, it's the way it happens. Curtis, it's amazing how passionate Moonlighting fans are to this day. Yeah. I got an email from someone that, you know, I, I don't know, it's just a reader. And she said, tell Glenn Gordon Karen he needs to redo that ending. And, you know, I have an idea for how it's going to work and we need to get this done. Can you and then, you know, listed this plot. And I'm thinking, like, man, the show is over. <laughs> like, Even I know it. Like, it's over. We're not going to have a better ending than we got. Curtis, what at that time, uh, two and a half years uh, of Moonlight, what, what did it mean to you and your career in the big picture? It was huge. It, it got me out of doing sort of uh, gross-out comedies, which is what I'd mainly been doing, or teenage comedies or sex comedies or whatever they were. Um, it got me into, a, into sort of more of an adult area. It was my first TV. It was a hit series. I was working with major stars. Um, it's hard to really quantify how hugely important it was. And weirdly, though, because of the problems of getting Moonlighting seen anymore, it's not streaming, you know, it costs $150 to buy the DVDs, you know, that kind of thing. Because no one knows it, um, it actually wound up having less effect on my career than anything, <laughs> even though it was hugely important at the time. Um, it was not really a jumping off place for me. And Scott, I, I hope, uh, I know it has with me uh, because I love the show, but I've gone back and tracked down what episodes I could find on, on various uh, illegal platforms out there. Uh, but I hope that it, uh, I hope it can maybe lead to some streaming down the road. But most of all, I hope it makes people go back uh, if they're not familiar with the show and learn about it because those episodes are, are Man, they're they're so good. They're so well written, so well directed, and perfectly cast and acted. It remains one of the best shows of all time. Yeah, I luckily have the DVDs and I've captured them into my iTunes, so I have them digitally and everything. Uh, I'm I'm pushing Glenn as if I have power over Glenn, which I do <laughs> not. But every time. I keep telling him, I want to help get these out on Blu-ray because even the DVDs are not perfect. There's a lot that they left out. There's music that's gone. There's there's front, the thing, the cold opens 
are missing from the DVDs. Wow, so, even from the box set? Yeah, yeah, they wow. did really, I mean, they did, I don't want to, I'm glad it's out, but they did not do a, wow. a perfect job that. of it. Yeah. they brought us all in to do interviews for that and everything. But do you remember, Curtis, we didn't talk about this in the interview, but there was a cold open where you guys are all going to get naked to to compete with 30-somethings ratings because, <laughs> you know, Bruce, uh, David Addison says, you know that babe on 30-somethings walking around in her underwear, and it's the Viola... Um, measure and you know you guys start taking your clothes off and Sybil grabs and hides the camera that is nowhere to be found now but I but <laughs> and by the way I do I have no recollection of it so <laughs> it, that's it, amazing it, I swear it happens you can find it on YouTube I believe you um, but I just but it's I not out on DVD that's because you haven't seen it since probably ever but yeah, uh right. you luckily Sybil covers the camera before Viola thank gets God. too naked cooler, cooler heads prevail uh, <laughs> I want to thank you both it's it's been wonderful to talk about one of my favorite shows of all time the book is an absolute delight scott moonlighting and oral history and, and curtis uh, it is always wonderful to catch up with you as well thank you both so much thank you very much yeah and thank the both of you your your tweets and your online stuff it really helps we live in a stupid world right now where <laughs> Don't this we stuff ever. makes a difference <laughs> it, it's crazy it's not the work it's the tweets but so thank you both for everything you've done for the book so much fun uh, like i said uh, made me go back and revisit the series and uh maybe you want to do the same i love that show it was it was so unusual that was what made it so great it was like nothing else on television at a time when TV was just sort of a seascape of the same things retreaded, it, it yeah. was an original in a time when everything else wasn't. And when you, you go back and watch it now and you're like, oh, oh, everybody's doing that. Everybody, everybody's got a quirky character like Agnes DePesto. Mm. Everybody's breaking the fourth wall. All the things that they were doing, special episodes. Uh, but, but Moonlight, one of the first to do that. And just great stuff and so much fun to talk with Scott Ryan. If you love the show, you will love his book, Moonlighting and Oral History. And, of course, it's always a delight to talk with our friend Curtis Armstrong. Thanks to both Scott and Curtis. Thanks to you for being with us. And we'll catch you next time here on Downtown, the podcast. 